Okay, so what holiday is happening in the next week? Thanksgiving. I could get on my soapbox. I love Thanksgiving. I feel like it's the forgotten holiday. I always say we move from demonic to materialism, and we forget about gratitude. And I think it's really significant for what we're doing and where we are even in Romans because God created humanity for gratitude. You exist to appreciate God. You honor him when you give him thanks. But, ladies, we have failed. Um, It all started with Satan who wanted more. And then Adam and Eve, they were not satisfied with what God gave, and we struggle with the same thing. God himself, but here's what happened. God himself entered our thankless world, and he lived as Jesus Christ in flawless appreciation of his Father. He, every time you saw him, um, he took the bread, he broke it, he gave thanks. When he fed the 5,000, he gave thanks. He took, that's when he took the loaves and fish. He took the cup, he gave thanks. You see it over and over again. He died on behalf of our chronic ingratitude. And by faith in Jesus, we are redeemed from our ingratitude and its eternal penalty in hell. And so gratitude is at the core of Christianity and the gospel. For so for those of us who have been redeemed, Thanksgiving should have a whole new meaning. My hope is after eight chapters in Romans, your gratitude, well, maybe not completed eight yet, but your gratitude will take on a whole new meaning this year because we are so wealthy. We have been created and given physical life. We have been saved from the wrath of God. We have been justified. We have been redeemed and set free. He has provided the atonement or the propitiation of turning away God's wrath in in what he did on the cross. We have been given forgiveness. We have been given God's grace. We have been given God's love. We have been given God's righteousness. We have a spiritual life now. We have eternal life, which is to know God in Jesus. We belong to God, and we have the hope and the promise of resurrection. Like, do we need anything else? Do we need anything else? We should be the most grateful people on the planet. And so I want us to think of that as we go forward in the busyness of the next couple of weeks. So turn to Romans 8, if you would. And we're going to start reading in verse 1. And I have the old NIV, so your translation might be a little different. Therefore... Now, what do, you, what do you always do when you see therefore? You ask what it's therefore, the previous. And we'll talk about that in a second, but let me read. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a stunning verse, and you should memorize that verse. That's a great verse to memorize, not hard to memorize. I think that therefore refers to all of what we've seen in the first seven chapters, not just the immediate. It's because of all that God has done that there's no condemnation for us, okay? And so, boom, we got our first truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right there in Scripture, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
There can never be the eternal death penalty for believers. That is the foundation of this chapter. Condemnation speaks of punishment, not the verdict, but the punishment. What we have rightfully earned with our sin. But because of what Christ has done, we are now justified and given God's righteousness when by faith we enter into an intimate love relationship with Christ because he becomes our substitute. We're given a new heart which allows us to enter into the new covenant through the Holy Spirit. And now the law is a desire because God is our desire and he is our treasure. So the law has a completely different role. It's something we long to fulfill because we love the Lord. It's significant. And, and by the way, there is now, he's speaking of what a new age, what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done, now there is no condemnation. It's significant that Paul speaks of this right after we just looked at his ongoing battle, that the ongoing battle that a believer has with indwelling sin in our flesh. And um, though the battle is there, we fight from a position of victory. There's no condemnation. A wonderful truth to remember when there's those times of defeat is that really, even though you may be defeated, there's no condemnation. It's also very significant that he says it's for those who are in Christ, okay, in the Lord, and that is used. This is a favorite phrase of Paul. By the way, um, I don't think Paul never uses the word Christian. He always defines believers as in Christ or in the Lord. 164 times Paul uses that phrase. And I thought about that book that came out because I've been identifying myself after that book, a follower, not a fan. I'm a follower of Christ. I use that. But I thought, I need to define myself as I'm in Christ. Are you in Christ instead of are you a Christian? I just thought that was significant. I had no idea Paul used it 164 times. And so the question really becomes, are you in Christ? Because as Pastor Phil says, salvation's not automatic. It's offered to everyone, but you must receive it by faith. You must come to the Lord realizing you bring nothing. And it's not just a mental assent to be in Christ. It is a commitment. It is a surrender. It's an ongoing, intimate love relationship. It's not something you did at one time in your life. If there's not an active, loving, intimate relationship, and we're going to talk some more about some of those assurances in this chapter and even tonight, then you can't just assume because you've heard about Christianity or you think it's true that you are actually in Christ, okay? Um, We saw in Romans 6, 3 that we are baptized in Christ, and we talked about being immersed in Christ. And then in Galatians 2, 20, which, by the way, and one day I'm going to do a study on this. I had no idea <clears throat> how much, and I haven't brought it out a lot because I haven't been able to cover that. There's just been too much else. But I did not realize how much Galatians patterns along Romans. There's so many similarities in both of those books. But Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. So being crucified speaks of death. And we talked about that, and we're going to see tonight about fighting sin and, and putting the flesh to death. That's why being in Christ and being a Christian and having no condemnation is more than just believing something with your mind, okay? It is a death, and there's more to it than that. So I just want to make that point because I don't want to ever assume that everybody in here is a Christian or everybody listening to our study has really surrendered their life to Christ. And so I really want to make that decision that it's for those who are actually in Christ. So um, why is there no condemnation? Okay, so let's look in verse 2. Why is there no condemnation? Verse 2 starts with because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, when it says law, we're not talking about like the Mosaic law. It's talking about the principle, a law that's a functioning principle or, or a realm. <clears throat> so you have the principle of life that comes through the Spirit is what sets you free. When the Spirit comes to live in you because of, after what Christ did and the Holy Spirit comes, you are free from the law of sin and death. Not that you don't still have a battle. We saw that last week. But you're in a whole new realm. Okay, the spirit is mentioned 20 to 22 times. I've, I've seen both of those in this chapter, depending on your translation. And that is significant because this chapter begins to deal with sanctification. That is where we begin part of the process once we are made alive in Christ, the process of being conformed to his image. That can only happen. You can only be conformed to the image of Christ through the power of the Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit is so prominent in this chapter. Now, just take, we're going to take a little minute here, and I'm just going to throw out some things about the Holy Spirit. And have, I think we've covered that somewhat on Sunday morning, but I'm going to just reiterate. The Holy Spirit, part of the Trinity, is a person. It's not a thing. It's not a it. He is a person. He functions with a mind, emotion, and will. He loves believers, the saints. He communicates with them. He can be grieved. He can be quenched. He can be lied to. He can be tested. He can be resisted, and he can be blasphemed. All of those are in Scripture. The Bible speaks of the Spirit's omniscience. He knows everything. Omnipotence, he has all power. Omnipresence, present everywhere. The Bible speaks of the Spirit's divine glory and holiness. He's called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Jesus. And he's also called the Comforter and the Advocate for Believers. Now, that's a pretty great gift, ladies. That's a lot. And we have him. And as believers, <clears throat> we face a battle within because God has given us his Spirit, which is our power to become like Christ. But even though we've been delivered from condemnation, and I want to make this point as believers, deliverance from condemnation does not mean deliverance from divine discipline. Those are two separate things. Deliverance from condemnation does not mean deliverance from divine discipline. Galatians 6-7 says you reap what you sow. 
And Hebrews 12, 6 says, for those God loves, he disciplines. So it doesn't mean that you're not ever going to deal with something or a consequence or even God's specific discipline because of sin in your life. It means that you are not condemned to eternal hell. You don't have to fear that. That's what the condemnation means. What? Deliverance from divine condemnation does not mean deliverance from divine discipline, the discipline of the Lord. That's different than the condemnation of the Lord. So how does the spirit of life through Christ set me free from the principle of sin and death? The law could reveal sin, but it was powerless to atone for or bring righteousness. So God took the initiative. By the way, God always takes the initiative, ladies, always. He sent his son, it says, let's start with verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by sinful nature. We already talked about that. Sinful nature could see what the law required, but there was no power in it. As a matter of fact, it often stirred up rebellion. There's something in us. You know, if it says 55, um, you want to go 60? Does anybody in here drive that or more? What is that? Have you ever noticed that? What is that thing in us? So next time you see yourself going five or more over, I want you to remember what I'm talking about. The sin nature is battling in your members, okay? There's that thing that rises up that you just want to go a little bit more. Uh, anyway, not, not that I'm stepping on any toes. I'm, I'm right there with you. And so it says, for what the law was powerless to do, it was weakened by sinful nature. God did. Once again, God takes the initiative by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. He had no sin. That's why the... It says the likeness of sinful man. He came as a man, but he was not a sinful man. He was in the likeness to be that sin offering. Because he was sinless, he could be the sin offering. And so, because of this, he condemned sin in sinful man in order the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. So, um, we already talked about how God took the initiative, and one commentator said, verse 3, and, and we've seen, we heard jo Pastor Joshua talk about this, and I talked about this too, when it says, what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man to be the sin offering. That is one of the clearest, most succinct statements of substitutionary atonement. That's a big word we're learning, substitutionary atonement. There it is laid out for you in verse 3, okay? So then because we've been given God's spirit, we live, we have the power to live according to the spirit, no longer according to being in sin, in the sin nature, okay? So here's your next truth. Those in Christ live according to the spirit, those in Christ, not just mental ascent, but those who are in Christ live according to the Spirit. Now, you have the power to do it, but you also have the responsibility. Because I want to add this to that truth, because I liked how one, one writer said this. Everything that is a spiritual reality is also a spiritual responsibility. 
Everything that is a spiritual reality in your life as a believer, everything that is a spiritual reality is also a spiritual responsibility. There's this paradoxical tension between God's sovereignty and what he's done, what he declares about you, and your will and your responsibility. There's always that tension, and they work together, okay? Now, Paul is going to go forward and describe the difference. Now, if we said, if you're actually in Christ, you're going to live according to the Spirit. Not perfectly, but that's going to be the pattern of your life. So let's talk about how he describes that. The difference between those who are saved, those according to the Spirit that are in Christ, and those who are not, God's enemies. So you have the Spirit and you have the sinful nature. All right? So let's start in verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But, here's the contrast, those who live in accordance with the... No. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit... What did I... Oh, yeah, that's right. Have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So you've got... You've got two patterns so far, the sinful nature and the spirit. Did y'all, did, on your homework, did y'all make a column with that? I don't know. I just think it's easy to see. So you've got, um, and, and note the key in this section is the mind. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Six, the mind of sinful man is death. Now notice, it doesn't say produces death, is death. The mind of a sinful nature is death. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So we've got this contrast. The sinful nature, I'm going to give you a list here that he just said, um, has their mind, you have your, if you live according to the sinful nature, if you're not in Christ, you are God's enemies, you're destined for wrath, you are condemned already, according to John. Your mind is set on what the sinful nature desires. It is death. It's hostile to God. It doesn't submit. It cannot. It cannot please God. But the mind set on the spirit, those who are in Christ, they care about, the, that person cares about what the spirit desires and and their mind is life and peace. There's a huge contrast. Now, let's go to Galatians 5, and let's take a look. Once again, you see the pattern with Romans and Galatians. Let's look, let's look at this explained a little bit more for us. And, and it's kind of interesting that there's more to the mind than the sinful nature that he delineates in here. But let's start at Romans, I mean, go to Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. And we're going to look at... He's telling us to live by the Spirit. Now, we have the Spirit. There's that tension. We have the Spirit. We're going to be controlled by the Spirit, and yet we're exhorted to live by the Spirit. So there's that tension between our part and God's part. So he says in Galatians 5, 16, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Does that throw you back to chapter 7 a little bit, what we talked about last week? But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. 
The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, faction, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, this is the pattern of your life, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that you're going to do all of these things, but if you have some of these as an ongoing pattern, you need to examine yourself. Now the contrast, but the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces, the more you give Spirit, the Holy Spirit reign in your life, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Doesn't mean that you're going to have all that fruit all of the time, but this is going to be the evidence in your life. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Now, I'm just going to say I don't have a real problem with orgies, okay? I'm going to confess that. I don't. But, uh, but dissension or jealousy might rear its head in my life from time to time. So just because you don't murder and participate in orgies, don't think that he's not calling us out on some of those things that we can dismiss in our lives. And it's not that we're not going to battle it. We saw that last week. It's that what is the pattern of your life? He doesn't want us, he wants to exhort us to what we have to do as far as we're going to talk about this, killing sin and crucifying the flesh. I mean, you need to be brutal with it. But at the same time, he doesn't want us to be deceived that because we believe something with our mind and there's no evidence in our lives that there's no condemnation for us. So there's two sides to that. We should be affirmed and exhorted, but we also need to always, you know, examine ourselves. So, um, and and unless lest you're like me and you don't have trouble with orgies, uh, it ended with don't be conceited, provoking, or envying each other. Anybody in here have a problem with envy from time to time? So I'm just saying. Uh, It goes back to that whole gratitude thing. So while we must look at the outward fruit of our lives to see the evidence of our master, The key is inward. And what was the key in 5 through 8 that I pointed out to you? What word? The mind. Okay? That's where the battle is really fought. So think about what you set your mind on. What do you think about the most? And here's our next truth. The battle with our flesh is fought first in our mind. The battle with our flesh is fought first with our mind. Battle with our flesh is fought first with our mind. So I want to ask you, what are you doing to fight this battle? And are you having victory over the flesh in your life? I want to read you a passage from 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Speaking of the battle, he says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. 
We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So you see that there, the weapons the Holy Spirit gives us, and we're going to talk about the Spirit and the Word here in a little bit. We have power. We have power to demolish any false things about Christ or anything that the enemy brings in that can bring up discontentment and jealousy and envy, all of those things that come into our mind that set themselves up against both what is true about Christ and how we should be living, okay? All right, so let's go back to Romans, and let's go 9 through 11. He says, well, first, then he says, those controlled by the sinful nature, in verse 8, cannot please God. You, however, so these are believers, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness." And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who lives in you. And so that, that last part, giving life to your mortal body, speaks to our future salvation. One day when we will have resurrected bodies, okay? We have the spirit right now, even though as far as sort of the, the battle of sin nature, there's a death in our bodies. One day that won't be the case. But we have life in the part that really matters, okay? And that's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So now we move in verse 12 to the second therefore. Therefore, because of this, brothers, we have an obligation. That word means a debt. We have an obligation or a debt. But it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit, there's the power, you put to death, there's the crucifixion part, the misdeeds of the body, that's our flesh, you will live. Not only is that evidence that you're a believer, but it also brings the abundant life now if we're not letting sin reign. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So what do we see here? Because the Spirit is living in us, number one, because the Spirit's living in us, number two, because we have the promise of being raised with a new body free from sin, and number three, because God has done all of this for us, we have an obligation. There's our part. God has done his part. We have a debt, okay? We owe something, Okay, our obligation is not to the sinful nature because, ladies, it is going to fight for the right to rule in your life. It's going to deceive us to believe we should obey it, but it only brings death. Death eternally to unbelievers, but it brings temporary death to a believer when we sin. Now, let's talk about that. Do you remember what I said death? This was a few lessons ago. What is death really? Separation, exactly. So when we begin to let sin rule in our life, we're not cut off from our salvation, but from that relationship, because it's the relationship that really gives us life. When we're cut off from experiencing that love relationship, 
we begin to have our passion for God dulled. We begin to become complacent. So I want to ask you, do you feel a complacency for God, a complacency for his word, a complacency for prayer, a complacency to obey in the small things as well as the big things? And if you do, will you ask God to reveal any unconfessed sin? Because a lot of times our complacency is born out of sin that we don't even realize is there. It can be both sins that we commit or sins from what we omit as far as not obeying. If a professing Christian habitually lives in sin, it shows no concern, and they show no concern for repentance, forgiveness, worship, fellowship with other believers, he proves that... He claims the name of Christ in vain. That was the thing that I always struggled with my father, who was raised in church, and he was probably just one of the most moral, wonderful people. But he never, my whole life, he never had any desire to be in church. He grew up in church, but he didn't. And I, I never could understand that. And I prayed for him. He assured me he knew the Lord. And finally, the last couple years of his life, I just began to pray that the Lord would not let him be deceived. And two weeks before he died, he was dying of congestive heart failure. Our pastor at the time went up to him and said, Mr. Hankins, do you know for sure that, you know, you belong to Jesus Christ? Have you ever surrendered your life? And he said, no, I haven't. Started crying and prayed to receive Christ two weeks before he died. After a lifetime of, you know, from the time I was 12, praying for him and having conversation after conversation. Because he was a great man, you know? I mean, and he believed in his head. He knew all those right answers, but he was very self-sufficient and had no desire for the church or the things of God. And that always, I never could understand that. I'm not saying that you can't be saved, and not, but I think there's question. And so I just prayed that he wouldn't be deceived. Um, and I want you to think about this. The more the world has promoted self-love and self-fulfillment, the more we have seen sexual promiscuity, abuse, perversion, stealing, lying, murder, suicide, and hopelessness multiply. Think about how those two things have gone together. The more God's people turn their focus from him to themselves, the more they're going to fall into sin. And Colossians 3, 1 through 3, talks about since you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on things above, not earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. There's always that thing. This is who you are. You died, but put it to death. You see that tension? It's all through Scripture. God's part, and then our part living it out. Okay? It, verse 13 says, But by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body. Here's your next truth. Two truths, actually. To live, we must kill sin by the Spirit. To live, and that means to really have that abundant life that God wants us to do and have His Spirit moving in us. To live, we must kill sin by the Spirit. And this truth goes along with it. Are you all with me? Are you ready for the next part? The faith that makes peace with God, the faith that gives us peace with God, makes war on sin. That same faith is going to make war on sin. The faith that makes peace with God makes war on sin. We saw in Romans 6, 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So what is the role of the spirit in killing sin and how is the mind involved? Okay, the Holy Spirit 
in John 14, uh, 15 through 16, Jesus said, ask the Father, and he will give you the spirit of truth. He's called the spirit of truth. I want you to think the Holy Spirit and the mind. I want you to think about this. In 1426, the Spirit will teach you all things, Jesus said, remind you of what I've said. John 1526, the counselor comes, the Spirit of truth. John 1613, the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. 1717 in John, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. Ephesians 617, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the only offensive weapon in the armor is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, spirit and the word, the spirit and the word. Revelation 1.16, it speaks a vision of the man, which was Jesus. The sword came out of his mouth like a sharp double-edged sword. In Revelation 2.12, these are the words of the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. Um I'm not going to read these, but also uh, Romans 2.16, and then, I, I mean, Revelation, excuse me, 2.16. I guess I will read that, so I'm going to go to Revelation 19. I, I want you to see the significance of the word. So 2.16, this is to the letters to the churches I've been quoting from. Um, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So you keep seeing the sword, which is like a picture of Jesus' words. The word of God is pictured as a sword. Um, and then in 19, and this is a vision of Christ, one of my favorite chapters in, in the Bible. In Revelation 19, in this vision of Christ, it says, let me get over there. Then I saw, wait, no, 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 no. Maybe it was nine. It's talking about the beast and the two of them uh, starting in, uh, I guess I'll go on down to 20, that the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs. With these signs, he had deluded those. See the deception and the contrast between the deception of Satan and the Holy Spirit, which is the, the spirit of truth. He had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive in the fiery lake, and the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, which is Jesus Christ. And so we see this all the way true. And then in Hebrews 4.12 is where it talks about the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. You see it as a weapon, the word of God used by the Spirit. So how do you use the Word of God practically to kill sin? If you're thinking on the Word, meditating on it, and memorizing it, you have less room for sinful thoughts and deceptions in your mind. When the flesh rises up and you're battling anger, fear, pride, self-righteousness, bitterness, any of those things, if you go to the Word, ask the Lord to give you something, you can replace that Word and battle that sin and that emotion with the word. I've had to do this before, especially with fear, by literally posting it on cards where I could just see it and keep setting my mind on it, okay? Um, there are many examples of this I would love to share with you. I remember one time I, I wanted a job um, that I didn't get, I expected, and I was really mad about it. Not that you'd ever get mad about it. Even though, even though I told the Lord, just whatever you want, but then I got mad. Do you ever do that? Okay, anyway... Um, I was reading in Isaiah, in Isaiah 49, I came to this verse that said, um, 
I've labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain because I had worked at this place for a long time. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God or my reward is my God. And that truth just changed my whole perspective and the bad attitude that I had and all my plans for what I was going to say and what I was going to do. The power of the word of God and truth but you have to be in the word for God to make that real in your life. So kudos to y'all for being here. All right, so let's go to 14 through 16. I think I already read that. For you, Let's start at 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children now, we, for our children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering, that we may share in his glory. Now, the Spirit has moved us into a new realm. No longer fearful of death and wrath, now we relate to God as Father. He gives us holy affections, affections for God, and we have this spirit of adoption. Um, in Rome, in the Roman culture, um, in our culture, sometimes people can think of adopted children as second class, some people's second class. In Roman culture, the adopted son sometimes had greater privilege than natural. The fathers had absolute rule, and if they had a, a son that was disappointment, they would go out and search for someone to be a worthy son and adopt them to then inherit and carry on the family name. So I just think that's very interesting. Um, they were placed in the family. All their debts and obligations were eradicated and so forth. And then Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship, through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. We talked about reconciliation. It's almost like a new level now. We're not only reconciled, we're sons, our daughters, and co-heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ has, we have. There's a beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament. In, um, and I'm just going to talk about it briefly. 2 Samuel 9. So... There was, um, so David, David was, was becoming the king of Israel. Saul was the king. God rejected him. He anointed David as king, but it was a number of years before Saul died, and Saul became his enemy. But David and, his, and Saul's son, Jonathan, were, they loved each other as friends, and they made a covenant with each other. And so after Saul died and David came to the throne and, and, and you know, Saul's family was wiped out, David, the king, went to a servant and said, is there anyone left of Jonathan, Saul's family, Jonathan's family, that I can show favor to or grace to? And they said, there's only one son, and his name is Mephibosheth. Heard of Mephibosheth? His name means a shameful thing. Now, I want you to think of this about who we are as adopted. His name means a shameful thing. He, he lived in Lodabar, which meant a barren land. And David... Um, sent the servants to bring him, and he said, I want you to come live and eat at my table, and I'm going to have servants take care of all the land that was your father's and grandfather's, and you're going to have all the fruits of that. And he brought him 
to dine at his table and, and to love him, even though he was a shameful thing and in a barren land. Do you see the analogy, ladies, of what God has done for us? We are Mephibosheth, and the king has invited us to his table to be joint heirs. The spirit of adoption is huge. It is huge. We should be stunned that he would do that for us. He would not just make a way for us to live and give us his spirit, but we would belong to him in that intimate relationship. So the next truth is the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God. The spirit is there to testify, not just give us power, but give us assurance. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we belong to God. Susan Raleigh told me that that's the very verse that God used to bring her to salvation. The Spirit himself testifies because she thought she was a Christian, and when she read that and realized she did not have that, that Spirit affirming in her life, that she was able to come to the Lord. So what are some evidences? Our desire is for God himself, his glory, not our own. Our desire is to kill sin. Um, what are some evidences of our adoption? The more we pursue God, the more we obey him out of love and the stronger the assurances that we have. So it's like a cycle. The more we do what God's called us to do, the more sure we are. Um, and that obedience is out of love. It's not out of trying to get some glory for ourselves. Okay. The more fruit we have in our life, the more assurance we have. That's why as you walk with the Lord, you should have greater and greater assurance. It's not that you're not ever going to doubt your salvation. We're human. But when you reflect on your life and you see that fruit and you see those evidences, it gives you that encouragement. One of the inheritances, and we're going to talk more about this next week, is in verse 17, suffering. Suffering itself produces assurance. Can you imagine how suffering produces assurance? Because as we suffer and cling to God, we do battle with the word, we persevere, hoping and trusting in God, as we seek to bring him glory in our difficulty, even if we don't do it perfectly, then our suffering produces character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint us. We see God's faithfulness, our faith is strengthened, and we see that God has carried us through. When we, and here's the next truth, when we are God's children, our inheritance is God himself. So often we think about heaven and we think about, you know, no more pain, no more death, and those are wonderful things. But our inheritance is God himself. We share in his glory as we live in the fullness of his presence. And I want to give you, I'll, I'm going to give you these three references and then I'm going to read them to you. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you? Psalm 84, 10? It looks like Psalm 84, 0, but I don't think there's a 0. So Psalm 84, maybe 10. You better put a question mark by that. Can't read my writing. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And Psalm 16, 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And ladies, that's for right now. We'll have complete fullness in his presence one day when our sin nature is put away. And I look forward to that. 
but we can walk in this right now. That's why it's so sad when you watch certain preachers that make it all about claiming this or claiming that. I mean, I, I'm not saying I pray for health too. My body doesn't feel well, okay? I, I, I ask for some of those things, but that is not the true inheritance. That's not the true life. It's God himself. And we miss out when we settle for the lesser things. So I want us to think, to add it to all the riches in one through seven that we've already seen, we add the gift of his spirit to empower us to become like Christ, to empower us to put sin to death, and to testify that we belong to God. So I want to encourage you, will you spend time this week on all the riches, thinking as you're making your pies or cleaning your house or all those things you do for Thanksgiving, will you spend time thinking on all the riches that God has poured out on you and thanking him for each and every one that you've seen in Romans? That would not even be a bad thing to go back through each chapter and make a list. Put them up in your house of all those things we've seen about justification and atonement and propitiation and righteousness and your grandkids come over, your kids come over. Talk about those big words. There's value in big words, okay? Um, and so my hope is for myself that I will make this Thanksgiving a time of greater worship and richness because God is just, the gifts just keep on giving. And as we move forward through chapter eight, ladies, it's going to get even better. So uh, thank you for being here. And um, I wish you the best of holidays and time to really make Thanksgiving what it's truly about. Let's pray.